Lord, you tell us not to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear because you take care of the birds and the flowers of the field and so we are to put our minds solely on Christ and you give us faith we might trust in the things that are not seen and be certain of the things for which we hope. Lord, I can't do any of that. So we pray this morning that you would fill us with your spirit. For it is by your spirit that we believe, it is by your spirit that we trust, and it is by your spirit this morning that we will read these words of John. For your spirit will drive us into all truth and point us to our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are in John 4, which is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. However, I've been requested to answer a question before we get to John, which means we might not get to John. Uh, the question, and I'll do my best to, to recapitulate if I get it wrong, correct me, even though you don't want to ask out loud. Um, the question is, and, and I'll do my best to, to say it correctly, um, if Adam and Eve were created in the garden perfectly, right, how did they sin? Is that basically the right way to think about it? Okay, so it's, it's a very good question. Um, if Adam and Eve were created in the garden perfectly, then how do they sin? I'm going to let you guys take a swinging shot at it. What do you all think? What have you heard? You know, I, I won't say, what do you think? You can just say, I've heard. One theory I've heard is, and then you, uh, whether or not you agree with it, we don't have to be such judgmental people. We can just say, I heard this. What have you heard? How did Adam and Eve sin? Given free will. Okay, free will. That's, that's the big one. That's a big one. Okay, they were given free will. <clears throat> what does that mean? Free will means what? Yeah, they get to choose. Choose what? Choose to do good or bad. Right, choose if, to do good or bad. They can choose to do uh, good or evil. So we're saying they were given free will in terms of moral decisions. That they were free to choose to obey God or choose to disobey God. Okay? That's one theory. What's another theory? Scott? All part of God's plan. Yeah, God did it. All right, cool. That's fun. All right, and the other is it's not God's plan; it's the devil, <laughs> who we see in the story as a serpent, right, or a snake. Yeah, Susan. Yeah, that's the action, but the, we're asking the question of, like, how is that possible? They gave into temptation. That's right, but how is that po- How could a perfect being give into temptation? That's the question. Not what they did. That's, you're right. That's what they did. But how? How is that philosophically possible? To relate to what, what uh, Satan, Satan fell from God. So. All right, so now in a subset of the devil... It's, it's somehow, because of his fall, this somehow affected humans. Right? Okay. Isn't this fun? 
We should vote. We should have a, like a democratic election on this one. Like, what do you think of this? Let's go with that one. Roger? Well, God established an order, and he established law and boundaries. Yeah. And he set those forth. Yeah. So, so therefore, he also gave them a choice. Well, I, that's this one. Well, but I don't know. I don't like the word free. You don't like the word free? You just, okay. Free or um, a choice. Now, anybody want to take a stand? Anyone want to be bold and say, that's right and that's wrong? Well, I guess I don't think that that's God's plan because if you, God wants people to fall, then you're saying God is evil and God is not evil. Wow. <laughs> All right, so we just called God evil. <laughs> um. No, I said I don't think God's evil. <laughs> we don't want to say that. That'd be terrifying, right? That'd be absolutely horrifying. Okay. Don't put your pen at me. You about to, the bigger plan is why did God create the world in the first place if he knew it was going to... Right. So now we're going to go back a step before this and say, well, if this was going to happen, then why did God create the world? Why would he do all this? Yeah. So, okay. So here's the problem. Um... This answer doesn't really work. Um, it actually drives you to the second one, which is if God gave us free will, knowing that we would choose to sin, then whose fault is it that we sinned? It's God's. Because saying that we have free will is simply another way of saying that God allowed us to do what he knew we were going to do, which is fall into sin. So we haven't actually let God off the hook by saying we have a free will. It doesn't actually work. Plus, there's actually zero scriptural support for free will. There is no scriptural support for humans having free will in moral decisions. What about Job? What about Job? I mean, God and the devil were talking about it. Yep. He said... He told the devil, go, go, go after Go ahead. Go attack Job. But Job doesn't have free will. What does Job have? Faith. Faith. Yeah. He's like, go ahead. Try my servant Job. He's a good example. Okay. And what did Job say? Even though you slay me, I'll believe you. That's right. Job said, should we not receive only good from the hand of the Lord? Should we not also receive evil? What? Okay, so according to Job, it is God's plan. Good and evil are all in the hands of God. So here's the problem. Whenever we try to answer this question, we're going to fall into certain traps. If we think it's free will, we're locating the responsibility of the human condition where? On us. It's all about humans. That's a very very human-centric way to look at the entire reality of humanity. If you locate the fall into sin in God's will, what happens, Myrna? You make God evil. evil, And we can't live with that because God can't be evil. It's contrary to his being. Okay? If we locate it all in the devil, then what's wrong with that? 
He's equally powerful or more powerful than God's creation of the perfect being. And what else is wrong with it? Well, he should not. If, if Adam and Eve were perfect, they were created without the ability to sin. Yes. Where does it say that? It was created in God's image. Uh-huh. And everything was good uh-huh. in the garden. Uh-huh. Them. Uh-huh. And that's what the guy in chapel said. And that's what the guy in chapel said. <laughs> Which is where my question came from. Right. So what happens is when we get to the question of what happened before the fall, do you know what the Bible tells us? Nothing. They walked with God. We don't know. We don't know. None of these answers, none of these, yeah, I'm not going to say I don't know, I'm going to say we don't know. <laughs> um, none of these, none of these answers work. Literally, none of them work out in the end. They all fail somewhere. And here's the problem. Because all of them are characteristic of us trying to to too narrowly define something that Scripture does not define. Here's what we know about the fall. God created them perfect, whatever that means, and they were deceived by the serpent. And the result of that deception was death. Not just for them, but for all mankind. That's what we know. Now, there's another story that you can read parallel with that story. Let's do it. Let's just pretend we haven't didn't just do Genesis right before this, but, you know, just in case. So let's go back to... Let's go back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1... 26 and 27, because that's the verse you all are thinking of. <laughs> all right. Someone read that? Genesis 1, 26, 27. Okay, good. You guys heard that before, right? So, you can read this as the story of the creation of humanity. Or, not or, and it is the story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus in the New Testament is the image of God. And this is the way I want you to start thinking. And this is going to be creepy, and, and this, is, this is a Kevinism. I'm warning you now. You won't find this in Luther. Well, you will, but not in the same way I'm going to do it. Um, the, the point of the creation is the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Okay? Get it through your heads. The point of the creation is the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the point of the New Testament is that this is not a secondary accident that came because this got messed up. No, this was the point all along. Hebrews chapter 12 says, He is the beginning and the goal of our faith. In Paul, Jesus is the goal of everything God's ever been doing. In John, Jesus is the point, and his death and resurrection specifically is the point of everything. It all points to this. Okay? So when it says in the image of God we were created, why were you created as a human? Because Jesus was incarnate as a human. So God wanted us to be fall into sin. So no, Jesus not God did not want us to fall into sin. But the point of Jesus is to save us from our sins. That's sin. right. So if we aren't sinful, we have no need of a savior. So right. Therefore, God had to create no. us sinful no. people. Stop, stop with the therefores. <laughs> The therefores is where you're getting in trouble. You're speaking truth, and then you're making a logical leap and saying, therefore, God had to. That's where we get in trouble. We have to let the narratives of Scripture simply exist as God reveals them to us. So one of the things we learn is that God creates God creates man, wool man, in his image, and this is done. Why does he do this? Why does God create man and woman in his image? Have dominion over the fish. He gives them dominion over the fish in the earth, so they have a role to play on the earth. But why does God make man and woman in his image? Because Christ is going to be the image of God in flesh. So this is all. In Genesis, is anything God does in Genesis 1 bad? No, it is all good. So the creation of man and woman, the image of God, is good. Okay? Now, where do you see the goodness of God displayed once for all? On the cross. So what we're going to do is we're going to read this entire story of the creation of man and woman in the image of God as good, which points us to the revelation of God in Christ Jesus to be good, and the fall into sin does what in this narrative of looking at all things pointing to this? What does it do? It gets you to what God has done about our condition. It does not get us to the question of why God allows or why God let or who does what. It doesn't answer that question. And this is, this is what I actually want you to think through in all this. As you read Scripture, you will continually stop and say, yeah, but why? And the answer is, keep reading. But it doesn't satisfy. It's not written to satisfy your curiosities. It's written to tell you the story of God's redemption in Christ. Karen, I'm sorry. I don't have any clue how. Because, and, and I'm proud of this, because the scriptures do not tell us. And any theory you come up with is actually departing from scripture, and we end up 
doing things, we make we have to make assumptions about all these things, right? This is really the weirdest one because it's simply moving the question back. The real question you're asking is, how can a perfect God allow sin in his creation, right? So whether it's located here or here doesn't really make any difference. If it's located in man first or in Satan first, it doesn't make any difference. The point is, even the angels fell. Why would God create perfectly something that can be flawed? That's really the question you're asking, right? And the answer is, according to Romans 11, he consigns all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. The characteristic of our God is to be merciful and to have steadfast love. Those things are culminated on the cross. That's what we know. So this is like in the same vein, the question I am talking about. So when Lucifer fell, why did God just destroy him and say, that's it? Right. I don't know. I don't know. All we know is that he was he was somehow bound for a time, he's let loose for a time, he's bound again, and then pretty soon he's be smushed. Like, okay. And what the most terrifying thing I've read is that he's been let loose on the earth to wreak havoc until Christ returns. It's like, thanks a lot. What is that? <laughs> I didn't need that. I was doing bad enough on my own. I don't need his help. Right? Good. Very good. This is why I get very nervous when people say that heaven is simply going to be the Garden of Eden recreated. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's going to be the Garden of Eden after this. What happened here? What happened to Satan here? He was defeated. See, that's different than the first time around. So when you when you get to heaven, there will be no sin because Satan, death, and sin have all been defeated. And you will live where those things cannot touch you. Okay? Because Christ has defeated them. The former things have passed away. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. See, in the new creation, this is now what wins. So now, this, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ. What does Jesus say to his disciples at that mountain in Galilee before the Great Commission? What does he say? All authority in has been given to. So when you live where Jesus is king, who gets to walk up and defeat him or you? Nobody. Nobody. Because he's king of kings and lord of lords. And nobody, nobody gets into his kingdom. That's what the cross says. The cross says the only people who get in are the people that he wants in. Now, how do you become one that Jesus wants in his kingdom? You rotten, filthy, stinking sinners. 
How do rotten, filthy, stinking sinners become one that God wants his eternal kingdom where there is no sin? The same thing that defeated your enemies is also the thing that gives to you his righteousness, right? So, you want what Jesus got on the cross? How do you get that? Right? Be in Christ by hearing the word in your baptism, by receiving the Lord's supper, right? In these ways, Christ comes to you and he gives to you his righteousness and takes away your sin so that when you die and, and the judge comes and says, well, let's just have an accounting of everything you've done in your life. You look at me and you go, I'm with Jesus. <laughs> right? I, not on my own. I don't stand here because if I did, I'm toast. Right? And when he does look at an accounting of all of your deeds, what is, what's happened to your sins? Where are they? They've been removed from you. They've been forgiven. They've been taken away. They're not counted against you anymore. They're counted against Christ, who was the one who was standing there as the holy, righteous judge. And what do you have in the place of your sins? His righteousness, which means what's he going to see in you? He's going to see in you good works. And you're going to say, who, me? I don't remember doing those things. Right? This is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Is that the righteous stand not with their sins, but with the righteousness of Christ displayed in their lives. And it's counted to them as righteousness. Now we heard today in our Old Testament reading, in Genesis chapter 15, the first time this word is used is that Abraham is counted righteous because of his faith. Right? Abraham believed the promises of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. First time the word faith is used. Okay? So what happens is you receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay? So, this, the whole point is that when we get to the kingdom of God, God's eternal kingdom, remember, oh, I said this, sorry, I said Bible class that I, other book when I teach on Friday. We just did this, but it wasn't you guys. It's a different class. We just went over this word. Kingdom is a verbal noun, and it means the place where God reigns. Right? Well, guess what? When you get to heaven, Jesus reigns. When will his reign end? Never. So when will death get to walk in and take you? Never. When will sin get to walk in and take you? Never. When will the devil get to walk in and do what he wants? Never. Because you're going to live in Jesus' kingdom where he is king. He'll be enthroned as king and nobody, nobody gets in except who the king wants in. Okay? And that's what the book of Revelation talks about with the way it pictures the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? 
So there is a difference between the creation before the death and resurrection of Christ and the new creation after. There is a difference. And the difference is the death and resurrection of the Son of God. It changes everything. Okay? That's the arc of Scripture. Does that make sense? Any questions or thoughts? You're allowed to disagree. <laughs> so, Adam and Eve were created with a vulnerability. They didn't have uh-uh. the full knowledge of God. Uh-uh. Nope. You can't say that? Nope. I'm not going to say that. You? <laughs> they were tempted to believe they did not have a full knowledge of God. But there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. So that would imply that there's, there's knowledge that they didn't have. Well, that's a pretty sinful thing to think. <laughs> Roger. <laughs> Why are you chasing after things that God did not give to, to you? If God created you and everything you need, then why are you pretending there's something that God didn't give to you that you would need that he didn't give? If God says, all you need to know is this, and someone comes along and says, oh, there's stuff out there that you don't know. I don't care. I'm just, God gives me everything I need. See, here's the point. I'm not picking on you, Roger. Oh, no, I don't. <laughs> Beat me up. I truly believe this, and, I, and I'm, I'm trying to push this agenda, so this is a personal agenda that I'm pushing. <laughs> I, think if, I think we need to start saying that the, the Ten Commandments, especially 4 through 10, are simply the command to not covet. Meaning this. Don't want what God didn't give to you. Be content with what God gave to you. Right? Fourth commandment. Honor your father and mother. What does this mean? It means that we should obey authority. Well, why don't we obey authority? Because I want to be the authority. You don't get to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. What is that? It's coveting a position that God didn't give to you. Are you a child? Obey your parents. No, I want to make the rules in this house. Well, sorry, you're not the, the you're not the parent. You're the child. So act like it, right? When you're at work, are you the boss? No, but my boss is stupid and wrong. So I'm going to tell them what's up. Well, what are you doing? You're acting in a way that God did not give to you to act. You want a role He didn't give to you, right? So we covet authority. What about the fifth commandment? No, that's sixth. Fifth commandment. Don't murder. Why would you murder? Because you want to have the power of life and death. That's right. One is you want to have the power to decide who lives and dies, which is quite uppity of you. (laughs) The other is somehow your life is in the way of my life. And so my life is more important than your life, so I'm going to do something to hurt you. What does Luther say? Instead of that, what should we do? We should help our neighbor in their physical life. Why? Because God gave it to them. I don't want to take it away. I want to help them, right? So we don't covet life. Sixth commandment. What is sixth commandment really all about? Don't want what God did not give to you 
from a sexual point of view. If you're single, are you allowed to be sleeping with somebody? No, God didn't give you that. You're single. That's kind of what it means. Okay? If you're married, are you allowed to look at someone else that you're not married to and say, ooh, I want that? No, you're not. That's coveting. Right? God gave you your spouse. Be content with that. Now, guys, listen to me. Girls, you don't have to listen. Guys, look at, listen to me. You can't say, I'm looking but not touching. No, 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 no. Jesus covers that. That's coveting. That's sinning. That's the same thing. Okay? Seventh commandment, don't steal. Why would you steal? Because they've got that. I don't have it. I want it. Right? Well, here's the problem. God didn't give it to you. When you pray, give us our daily bread. You know what God gave you? Your daily bread. He didn't give you their daily bread. He gave you your daily bread. Well, you're saying to him, you stink at giving me what I need. I'm going to go get it for myself. Seventh commandment. Eighth commandment. How do we covet our neighbor's reputation? Well, if I cut them down, I'll look better. See, and what happens is we're coveting. And this is the whole thing is that Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he goes, God is holding out on you. God is not allowing you to know everything you really need to know. Right, Roger? And, and faith says, if God doesn't want me to know it, then I don't want to know it. I'm just going to receive what he gives. Right? Faith says, listen to our gospel today. Faith says, whatever God gives to me and tells me that's my daily bread, what should I do? Be thankful for it. Not look around and say, no, 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 God, you're supposed to give me more daily bread. When I said daily bread, I meant pizza. (laughs) Not literally just bread, right? And you just gave me bread, I wanted pizza. No, that's not what we do. We're supposed to say, thank you. Whatever God gives to us. So the whole point, one of the ways to look at the temptation is that Satan walks up to them and goes, God's holding out on you. He knows stuff that you don't know, and he's, you could know it. He doesn't want you to know it. He's mean. And so they trust Satan instead of God. Which is a bad way to go. Right? Does that make sense? Susan. Yeah, I know you do. I don't, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Just keep it simple. Keep it simple. And I would say even keep it simpler. You wanna know who God is? That's who he is. Run there. Run there. That God, is he on your side or is he against you? He's for you. That's where we start. We say, we say, this is where God has revealed himself to us fully. So that's where we start. We say, this is the God who sent his son Jesus to be incarnate, to die and rise on a cross for me. That's who my God is. And then everything flows from there. Right? Does that make sense? Scott? So if we should be thankful for all we have, why should we pray God for petitions? Um, so that you can learn to be content in what you have.
don't be anxious about anything. But in everything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, let your request be made known to God, and He will give you whatever you ask because He wants to make you happy. That's not how it goes. It says, the next verse is, and the peace of God. See, what happens is, when we pray, I'm actually saying to God, here's the list of things that I would do if I were in charge. If I had your job, I would heal this person, I would bless this person, I would give me this, well, I'd give me lots of things, right? And, and you give them a list. And then you say, but here's the deal. Not my will be done, but yours. And this is my prayer. And teach me to trust that your will is better than mine. However these things turn out. I let you know what I was thinking. But I also know that I'm not God. So give me the faith to live a life that trusts. That even if he says no to every one of my requests, that that's still good. Paul says it this way. In order to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations that I've had, I mean, Paul rocked the revelations, right? Like he was seeing God and talking to him. He said, in order to keep me conceited, a messenger for Satan was given to me, a thorn in my flesh, and I prayed to God. I prayed to God three times that he would take it away. You know what his answer was? No! Paul's like, um, excuse me, Apostle Paul here, God, you should be impressed. But what does he say? He says, God said, my grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. So what did Paul say? Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then he is strong. See the movement? The movement in prayer is, is to say, here I am praying to God, and it's all, here's my thoughts. God, you should listen to me. I'll even pray in Jesus' name because that's an escape clause. Whatever I say in Jesus' name, he has to give me. I've read it in the Bible, right? I'm going to invoke scripture. And, and, and that's how we kind of start with prayer. But the, but the movement of prayer is to say, no, no, no. Get the, all those arrows off for me and get them all focused on God and say, okay, you're God. Here's, here's the reality of my life. I'm going to go to you with this because I believe that you are the proper place to put all my cares. I believe you are the proper place to bring all of my concerns. I believe that you are God of God and Lord of Lords, not me. And then what do we do? And then the result of prayer is that God, through his spirit, gives us faith to trust in God. And that is the secret of being content. Philippians 4, hands, 13, right? It's 13 though. Yeah, for, for me, remember, when Jesus comes back, go which direction? Left, exactly. Um, Philippians 4, 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's right before that? I have learned the secret of being content in all circumstances, whether I'm high or low, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm hungry or well-fed. I've learned the secret of being content. 
right? It's not that God will give me everything I ask in prayer. Remember, I don't know if you guys know this, but Philippians 4.13 is, is pretty quick after Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which is where it says, don't be anxious about anything. So what's the result of prayer? My point is the point of prayer is not that we manipulate God in doing what we want, but that we learn to trust that in Christ, God is for us. And whatever he does, we say, thank you. Even if he answers every prayer with no. We trust that that's best. I can't figure it out. That's faith, right? Pastor, things are, faith is what? Sermon today, Hebrews 11.1. 1. You guys heard it. You guys heard earlier service. Faith is being sure of the things hoped for and certain of the things that we cannot see. So faith is, right? So that's even the movement in prayer is that we go before and we say, here's all the things I'm thinking. Now, you're God. Teach me to trust that. Teach me to live in that reality. And then most of us, right before I hang up, we're like, but just in case you're wondering, this is how you should do things. Because, you know, I know. All right, so, um, yeah. John 4. <laughs> John 4, 16. We're at the point of the story where um, Jesus has established this reality of living water. So Jesus is hungry, which is cool because, remember we talked about Christology last time, that can God get hungry or tired? The divine nature cannot get hungry or tired or thirsty. It's not possible, right? So the divine nature cannot get hungry, tired, or thirsty. Can the human nature of Christ get hungry, tired, or thirsty? Yes. yes. How many Jesuses do you have running around? One. So that means whatever happens to one nature in Christ happens to the whole person of Christ and involves both natures. But we say that we see it according to his human nature, because that's not a quality the divine nature brings to the person of Christ. But how many Jesuses do you have? One. Therefore, whatever happens according to his human nature also affects his whole person and his divine nature. So, and Luther says this explicitly, on the cross, did just the human nature die? Did just the human nature of Christ die on the cross? You can't separate them. Whatever happened to Jesus happens to both natures in Christ because he, in the person of Christ, is the human and the divine. So we can properly say the Son of God died on the cross. Right? So the same thing are happening here. We have the divine Son of God, who's going to reveal himself as the great I Am, who is tired. God is tired. So he asks for a woman for a drink. And... Then he explains that it's living water and we get through all that. So now we're going to move forward in the conversation. Um, she is now to the point where she's like, fine, whatever, just give me this living water so I don't come back and get a drink anymore. And we're going to move forward in the conversation from there. So let's read John 4, verses 16 through 19. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Thank you very much. Okay. 
What a fun little conversation. So number one, what happens at Wells? You find a wife. <laughs> you find a wife. Okay? Remember, when you go to a well and you're a guy and you're single, you're looking for a wife. Right? We know this in the Old Testament. Abraham's servant goes to find a wife for Isaac and finds her at a well. Jacob finds Rachel at a well. Moses finds Zipporah at a well. So now we have Jesus who's single and who's a bride came to be the bridegroom. He's looking for a bride and he finds a woman at a well and they start talking about marriage. Okay? So this is called a type scene. Um, this, is, this is a scene that's used throughout the scriptures to talk about the whole idea of marriage. And remember, in the Gospel of John so far, we have been talking about marriage. The first public miracle Jesus does is at the wedding at Cana, right? And we have all kinds of marriage imagery there. And then in John chapter 3, at the end of John 3, John the Baptist talks in terms of Jesus being the groom. Okay? And him being the, fr the friend of the, of the groom, or the best man in our parlance. Okay? So now we have again this, this image of marriage coming back with Jesus. Now, in the gospel, have you learned the bride's name? Who was the bride at the wedding of Cana? There wasn't one. Who is the bride that Jesus is marrying in John 3? There isn't one. Just a bride. But there's no name. What's the woman's name at the woman at the well? I don't know. I don't know. So the bride goes unnamed. We're still looking for a bride. Jesus is the groom looking for a bride. Okay? And this is not just in the New Testament. This is actually throughout the Old Testament where God says, I'm a husband and Israel is to be my bride. But what's wrong with Israel? What's that? They don't want to be Yahweh's bride. They like, they're looking around at other guys, other lords, other gods. Right? Not only are they looking, <coughs> they, they go out and, yeah. According to the book of Hosea, they actually sell themselves. Okay? And this is the reason that they go into exile, both to, to Assyria and Babylon, is because they are unfaithful to Yahweh, their husband. Okay? So Jesus is walking around looking for a wife. Number two, is this woman woman a fitting bride for the righteous son of God? Right. That's a bet he's gotta settle. <laughs> yeah, so so you guys are right in your silence, right? You know the answer is no, because she's a sinful woman and a Samaritan, not even a Jew, all these problems, right? But on the other hand, you're confronted with the reality that this is exactly the bride he came to marry. 
Okay? So in a very real way, it's the fact that she is a sinner that qualifies her to be the bride that Jesus came to marry. And I always say this is this is one of the main themes of the Gospel of Luke. I know we're not in Luke, we're in John, but occasionally I like to admit the other gospels are kind of true. Mostly true. Right? They try their best. But Luke who might be the best of the other three? I don't know. I like Mark and Matthew too, but I like Luke a lot. Uh, Luke 19.10 says... You guys, we don't, we're running out of time, but what does it say? You guys know it by heart. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Okay, and I always tell you this. In the Gospel of Luke, if you want to be saved, you have to be lost. I didn't come to call the righteous. Right? That's what he says. I didn't come for the righteous. In John chapter 9, Jesus is going to say this. I came to make all of you who think you can see blind. And for those who are blind, I came to give them sight. And they're like, what are you saying about us? And he's saying, I'm saying that because you think you can see, you're blind. But if you want to see, you've got to become blind. And they're like, that didn't make any sense. He goes, I wouldn't try to make sense. I'm saving you. Different goal. Okay? Robin. Because salvation is from the Jews. So, <laughs> okay, ready? You guys have to keep up. So, God created the world. Um, at creation, we just did that. What percentage of creation was Christian when God created the world? 100%. What were their names? Okay, and then Jesus, and then Satan came in chapter 3 and they both fell into sin and what percent of the world was Christian? 100%. Zero. Right? No believers left. Just sinners. No believers. And then God came and made the promise in Genesis 3, 9 and 16. And how many people were, were Christian on earth? 100%. Because they believe the promises of God. And then, Cain, and then Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel and there were four people on earth and... How many were Christians? All of them. 100%. And then Cain fell away and killed Abel. So now we have three people, and two are Christian, and one is not. And then as you go through the book of Genesis, you will find that the, the ratio keeps getting worse for believers, but God keeps preserving His promises through one guy. It's Adam... It's Seth, it's Noah, it's, who's after? Abraham, it's Isaac, it's Jacob, right? And then he's like, okay, now, now that we've established this one person on the face of the whole earth, we're going to create a nation of people who believe in me. And so we have the 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And he says, here's the point. In this entire sinful world, there's going to be one 
that belongs to me and that one is going to show my glory to the whole world. And that becomes Israel. And Israel exists in order to be the glory of God on this earth so that all people will be drawn to the glory of God through Israel. And when they do, they will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, and in that calling upon His name, they will be saved. Now what happens is, Israel says, this is really freaky, they say, we want to be like all the other nations. And God goes, oh, you exist to not be like the other nations. They say, well, we want a king like them so we can be cool like them. And he goes, no, 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 no. You have me. You have the God of God and Lord of Lords as your king. And you want some dude? They're like, yeah. Okay, so that's what happens. And Israel stops being unique and they start being like all the other nations. So God says, fine. You want to be like the other nations? Then go be like the other nations. You want, you want to be like Assyria? Go live with the Assyrians. And then they go, no, 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 no. We're supposed to be special. And he goes, that's what I said. So what happens is they say, well, how is God now going to be righteous in the face of this entire earth? By one. And what you're learning is the whole history of Israel, the whole history of Israel was actually always pointing to this one, this one righteous presence of God on the earth who will establish to all nations his holiness. And when they see this, when they see the glory of God displayed, they will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So now, who is that one nation on earth that points all people to God? It's the church. Right? No longer defined by boundaries or by government or by treaties, but defined by the death and resurrection of Christ and all who belong to him now live in this world as his righteousness so that the whole world will see it and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That's Israel, right? So he, so he, he moves in history this way until it gets in some parlance, and there's actually a, a Lutheran guy who says this, it gets to the point where there are no Christians, there's no believers left. We just, we just run out of them. And that's what, in Christ comes and he says, I'm now the righteousness of God. I'm the promise of the land fulfilled. I'm the temple. I'm holy Israel. I am God on earth. And all nations will be drawn to that, to the cross of Christ. Right? Does that make sense? Now, again, why he does the way he does it, you have to take that up with him. But that's the way he does it. He preserves a remnant until that remnant is one guy. His name is Jesus. Okay. Oh, boy. I'm not going to let you go. Number three, how does she perceive that Jesus is a prophet? This is important. Especially for people about to go to church. Yes, in the revelation of her sinfulness, she sees that Jesus is speaking the word of God. Now, think this through. I just want you to, we're going to get in trouble right before we leave. A lot of people in this world think that the church's job is to not condemn people. And in that way, show them the love of God. No. 
no, 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 that's not God. God is loving enough to say, that's wrong. And I'm not okay with you living in sin. I'm not okay with that because that's not good for you. You are not created to be in sin. You are created to be holy. So it's not okay for you to live in that sinfulness. And the church is the one who has to love enough to look people in the eye and say, I don't care what you think. I don't care what society says. God says that's wrong and therefore is hurtful for you. And I love you enough to get you out of it. Not to, to condone it and just pretend, but to say no. Right? I talked to a person who was living a homosexual lifestyle and he said, you know what? No one cared enough to tell me I was wrong. Until the church finally looked at me and said, what you're doing is wrong. And God is not okay with you living in wrong. He wants you rescued. He wants you forgiven. See? And the church should not shy away from the law because we care enough to say to this world, this is not according to God's plan. This is wrong. And then we have to always make sure we are there to, to show them what God has done to rescue them, right? What has he done? He has done what is needed to rescue us from our sin. And this is what this woman sees. She says, I see that you're a prophet because you exposed my sin. So when pastor upstairs says to you, hey, welcome to church. Y'all's a bunch of sinners. You say, oh, I see that you're a prophet. <laughs> right? And so what do we do? We don't say, no, 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 you're wrong. We say, you're right. We confess our sins. And he points you back to the cross and says, your sins are forgiven. Okay? All right, next week we'll actually do John 4. Maybe. We'll see. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, your word convicts us and condemns us. And so when we are confronted with our sin, turn our hearts to you. For in our Savior Jesus Christ, we find forgiveness and peace and love. So teach us to live our lives trusting that you are a God who through all creation and all of eternity loves and forgives those whom you call to be your children. So keep us ever in your grace and teach us this week to serve you with our lives, rejoicing in your love. In Jesus' name. Thank you all.